This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Today, we're talking to someone who retired early. Like really early. I mean, at age 31, long before retiring early and the fire movement was even a thing. What followed is perhaps one of the greatest careers in broadcasting and financial advice in the world. Everything that he has done in his career has been driven by a passion for service to others, and it's allowed him to help millions of people. The great Clark Howard. I'm Wes Moss. The prevailing thought in America is that you'll never have enough money and it's almost impossible to retire early. Actually, I think the opposite is true. For more than 20 years, I've been researching, studying, and advising American families, including those who started late, on how to retire sooner and happier. So my mission with the Retire Sooner podcast is to help a million people retire earlier while enjoying the adventure along the way. I'd love for you to be one of them. Let's get started. There is no one in America that I, that I know of that is any more credibility or just straight up street cred uh, that has maybe helped more people than my guest today, Clark Howard. Clark? I'm also the dullest person alive. You didn't mention that part. You actually are always making jokes. Now, I don't always get all your jokes. <laughs> But you're always making jokes, so you're, it's not true that Clark Howard is dull at all. So, the um, anyway, so. and mine never involve cuss words or inappropriate content. You know, I will tell you that I've actually had a few curse words on the Retire Sooner podcast. It's like cable TV. You're allowed to curse on a podcast, aren't we? Well, I have said full price before. I've said retail. Those are your That's as close words. as I get to cussing. <laughs> So, so Clark, so if you obviously, I think that all of us on the podcast know Clark Howard, but as a reminder, has been a long time, 30 plus years, consumer advocate. Uh, he was a radio host, obviously, for many, many years. Now, obviously, the host of his podcast, the Clark Howard podcast, and has written many books and I just, I want to maybe get to, tell me about you as a kid. What did you do working? And then didn't you get into the travel business and then so, sell? Yeah, so my backstory is kind of wild. So uh, when I grew up, there were really no enforced child labor laws. So I started working at 11 years old in a warehouse. And uh, there's poor OSHA, so I can tell you it was not a safe environment. What kind and of warehouse was it? It was a furniture store warehouse. Yeah. Okay. And then I started working on the furniture delivery truck, and then I had another warehouse job. And so back when I was a kid, you just worked. And it's very different today because now kids in high school are all into getting experiences on a resume and internships and, you know, being president of this club or whatever. There's not as much emphasis on work. And I think kids are missing out on something by not having a work experience. Definitely, it was wrong that I was working at 11 years old, but we didn't know any better back then. But I'd always been about work. And I, truth be told, I was not a great student. Mm -hmm. 
I had six good years of high school. When I was a kid, high school was 7 through 12. And my six good days of high school were the last day of each year. I mean, I was, I was not academically oriented. And I, uh, I did go to college and got an undergraduate degree, and then I got a master's degree and had an undergraduate in government, master's in business. And I worked through college because when I was a – starting my sophomore year of college, I was 19 – I came home from college, which was the American University in Washington, and there was this air of death around the house. And I'm like, what is going on? Because back then, you didn't really have contact with family when you were away. That's right. You were fully just out of... Long distance was cost prohibitive. You only made a long distance call when you were told somebody died and come home, right? Yeah, yeah. Or your birthday. So you were a sophomore and you came home. Sophomore in college. Just started my sophomore year come home Thanksgiving, and things are really bleak. I don't know why they're bleak, but things are really, really bad. And sure enough, after dinner, my first night at home, my father asked me to stay at the table, and he said, I have terrible news for you. And he said, I lost my job. Hmm. And I'm smiling ear to ear. And he's like, what are you smiling about? I said, well, I thought you were dying. <laughs> and he, and yeah, he was laughed. Like you were nervous. You were sca- yeah. scary. But and yeah. and. He then went on to say, you know, I don't know there's money for you to go back to college in January. I'm like, what? Because, By the way, what was his industry? He had, well, it wasn't really an industry. He worked for his late father-in-law's company. So he worked for his two Mm brothers-in-law until they told him he wasn't working there anymore. Typical family stuff. Yeah. So he's, he's suddenly unemployed. And I, they had always lived, my parents always lived this really nice lifestyle. Mm. So I thought they were rich. Turned out they were living a rich life, but they weren't saving money. So when he lost his job, it was like, now what? And that's when he told me I had to go, I, I was on my own for college. So I went back and for the next semester, I registered as a night student. Mm-hmm. And I got a full-time job. It was during the Vietnam War, so I got a job with the Air Force. And I uh, actually worked in the Pentagon, which was really cool. Because American University is in... Right is in the heart of D.C. And I'd ride the bus to the Pentagon, and there was no subway then. And I worked at the Pentagon, and then after that I got a job at HUD that paid more. Oh, so you worked for the government early on. Yeah, so you're I was a, for people who have government background, I was a GS-4, civilian employee of the Air Force, and I was a GS-5 at HUD. And I did that till I finished undergraduate school. And then I got a job oh, with so, IBM. So, so during college, you, you were a GS-4 and then a GS-5. Yeah, and, and so what was so cool, I mean, nobody was making that kind of money working part-time as a student at the sandwich shop. I was, I was a government employee with benefits and making, you know, a good paycheck and then going to school at night. Uh, and I went to school full-time at night while I worked full-time during the day, which By the way, was what crazy. were you studying then? Uh, undergraduate degree in government. Uh-huh. I always thought I wanted to be a politician from when I was six years old, I thought I was going to run for office. Really? When yeah. did you change your mind on that, by the way? After working for the government for <laughs> three years. <laughs> for real. Yeah. So then I, I got a job with IBM as a bill collector. Um, 
and collected money from accounts that hadn't paid for their IBM equipment. It was on lease or rental. And I went to college, grad school at night because IBM paid completely for my master's degree. Oh, wow. Okay. So I, I hated uh, my job as a bill collector. I was actually not that bad at it, but I hated that job, but it got me my master's degree. And then, Wes, I made the most amazing turn in my life. I became um, an educator in an alternative school. Where? Now, was that in, in Atlanta? In I Atlanta. came back to my birth home of Atlanta. So after, hold on, what, what was the jump from moving from ha- harassing people for money yeah. to educating kids in an alternative school? Well, uh, you and know. By the way, were, they, were those companies you were, you, were pay, you were calling on or the individuals? Those are probably companies. companies. and government. And government, okay. Easier to harass. Mostly right? they gave me government accounts because I'd worked for the government. I understood how the rhythm worked. And, okay. And, you know, so often what was funny, Wes, was when a government agency hadn't paid for equipment, it's because they had a reorganization or whatever. Nobody knew where the equipment was. What? And I'd end up with, with these government employees in some warehouse somewhere walking around, looking at serial numbers, trying to find a match for equipment that they said they didn't have that they weren't paying for. Makes sense. And, uh, but it was, uh, it was funny because they'd have to decide, you know, they'd, Xerox would be calling. Remember, there used to be a company called Xerox? Oh, yeah. yeah. And Kodak would be calling, and um, uh, Honeywell would be calling, and all these companies. And the key was to um, get them to actually meet with you and talk about the money they owed. And so I just had this um, ability to get that done. So and that's where get that money. started with you. That's where that started, being able to kind of talk about bills and, and, and finances, that all was organically through this IBM job. Well, actually, uh, you got to go back into Clark prehistory. I, I had really always had the gift of gab. Oh, okay. That had always been who I was. And uh, in high school, I started a uh, volunteer program called Atlanta Volunteer Action that uh, worked in different campuses around the city, different high schools around Atlanta, uh, engaging people in volunteer activities. And, and you we did this would, in high school? Yeah, when I was 16. And we would match up high schools with elementary schools. And, I, yeah, I got it incorporated. I got a board set up of all, you know, all adults to, you know, that were, I mean, you'd ask, and I was 16, and I'd ask an adult who was head of some company, hey, can you help me? I'm doing blah, blah, blah would you mind being on my board? And they'd look at me like I had three heads and they, I was so audacious that they were like, is that the word audacious? I don't know. It was so uh, precocious. Precocious. I I had no, you know, there are times in your life you don't know what you don't know. Yeah. And so I got this thing rolling and, um, you know, got funding and we had this thing going on all around Metro Atlanta. Well, and you've, you've, continue to do so much volunteer work too. I mean, how many, hab- how much, how many years have you done Habitat or work with Habitat? This is There's year like number hammers on the wall. Yeah, this too. is year These are number houses, 27. Right? And I've had the privilege with my listeners, viewers, readers to sponsor 86 Habitat homes. Unbelievable. And my goal from two, th- I started volunteering with Habitat back in the mid nineties Sponsored my first house in 96. And in 2001, I set the goal that I wanted to sponsor, which is you put up the money 
for the hard costs of building a house. Um, I set the goal of making it to 100. And the pandemic has slowed me down a little. Mm-hmm. But I think if I live long enough, I'll make it to 100. You'll get, you, you're going to get to 100. And, so, but let's go, back to, let's go back to the story here. So uh, you, you've come, you're, first of all, dad hits you with this bad news. You realize that he can't pay for school. You end up working, paying for school. You get, you get through a couple of jobs, and then you end up coming back to Atlanta, your current so, home. Yeah, because when I was doing Atlanta Volunteer Action, one of the things we did was we were doing peer-to-peer tutoring where high school kids tutored elementary school kids. Okay. And the organization that helped me with that was an organization called Literacy Action, which taught non-reading adults how to read. And they helped me set up tutoring and gave us the materials and taught us how to do teaching high school kids, helping elementary school kids who were behind academically to help them catch up. So um, I ended up being offered a job by them when I finished graduate school because they were starting an alternative school, not for non-reading adults, but for people who had uh, flunked out of school or dropped out of school or whatever and were being held back in employment because they didn't have good academic skills. So I did that, and then I started my own school called Action is in my life a lot, Yeah, called Career Action, which taught people who had had trouble as young adults uh, finding their way into stable work and a stable uh, life where we worked with those uh, young people to teach them job skills, academics, uh, how to interview for a job, how to dress for a job, what was expected of you, we would call job readiness. So I started Career Career Action Action when I was 23 years old, and it continued for uh, about 25 years. It it closed down sometime in the early 2000s, I guess. But uh, that was was just an ongoing concern that you started, and then you I started and went off and did my next thing, which was I started action travel. If you're not getting the theme that action is a key word in my life. In you fact, know what? You, my I family jokes, <laughs> why didn't I name a child action? Action. Because it's in everything I ever do. So action travel. Well, the other thing is service too. I mean, you really, from high school, since a kid, you always have had service. I mean, you always were- had work. I've always had service. One thing I didn't do was a lot of paying attention in school. Okay. But somehow I overcame that. Which is especially ironic, and it's why I was so good running an alternative school. Because you didn't love school. Because I knew that there were a lot of people that traditional academics just didn't work for. And so coming up with a way to reach people that academics just didn't connect to them, to to get them to advance, we were able, and this is amazing, but in four months, we were able to raise someone's academic level in math five years. In four months? In four months. And did you figure out that methodology? No, I hired the right instructors who yeah. were people who were really, really good uh, refugees from being teachers. Yeah. Who left teaching because they felt like they weren't having the impact they wanted, that everything was too regimented. And brought in people who really were able to, who thrived and loved getting people that were now motivated at this point in their 20s 
to really get academics so they could move up in life and teach them. And we taught them skills. Oh, you're going to die. So we taught people how to operate something that I don't even know you can find in a museum, a 10 key. You know what a 10 key was? No, actually. It was a machine pre-computer era, like um, one of the big employers of people from what we did at Career Action were um, banks because they would need people to manually process checks at this specialized machine. Called a 10 key. 10 key. And we would teach them how to do that. So then and your so, people would go get so jobs funny, as much banks. as I pick on banks, they were one of the greatest sources of employment for people who we trained at Career Action at my school, my and, alternate school. And that lasted 25 years. Approximately, yeah. yeah. I was only there. I started it, and I stayed a couple of years, and then I went and started because I was 23 when I started that. Then at 25, I went and started Action Travel. All right, so you've never told me the story about travel. Because it's, you know, travel has gone through, what a roller coaster industry. Yeah. It was so hot and then it was, then it wasn't and then it was back and then it got hit by the pandemic and now it's, tell me about what you, what was, were you, tell me, I don't even remember what a travel agent would have been 25, 30 years ago. All right. So this was 1981 that I started okay. my agency and so, so 40 years ago. Right. So the airlines had just been. Uh, that would be, yeah, you're right. 40 years. My goodness. The airlines had just been deregulated. Okay. And I believe from, you know, business school and the economics courses I took and all that, that once you got the government out of it, because the government used to set every route for every flight, what fares could be charged, how many seats an airline could have on an airplane, what amenities they could offer, what time of day they could fly. And so there was almost no air service because nobody could afford it because the government was gumming everything up. Well, um, Jimmy Carter was the guy who, when he was president, he and an economist named Alfred Kahn came up with this idea of deregulating transportation in the United States because trucking used to be that way, airlines were that way. And I was like, this is going to go crazy. People are finally going to be able to take a trip, not by car or bus. They're going to be, because there were no trains really then, they're going to be able to get on an airplane. So I decided this was going to be El Dorado. This was a path paved with gold. Yeah. So I opened an agency in 81, opened another in 83, opened another in 84, another in 85, another in 86. And then these people from Ohio came and bought me out in 87 when I was 31 and gave me a lot of money and kicked me out the door. Hold on, hold on. You just skipped over a bunch of stuff. The So the, so it was a good business to be in. So it was right. phenomenal to be on so when, when things opened up. People were opening airlines everywhere. Most of them, all of them failed. But, but for, for instance, this was back in the day where... Somebody would call and say, hey, I need tickets to go here. And you would get a, just a commission on... 10%. Okay, on everything you would book. International was 15%. It was like, it was a great business to so be it in was a, a book. It was the path. Oh, it was. It was, it was awesome. Because we, we were profitable at about 8.6% commission. So everything above that was profitable. And then um, we were doing enough volume. We were getting kickbacks from the airlines that were legal under the law called overrides. So uh, we were effectively writing our average ticket about 15%. 
And we were profitable about 8.8 to 9.1, depending on the year. So every additional ticket we wrote was just bam. So again, what, just paint the picture for me. It, was it uh, like three people in a travel agency or was it 10 people? What was Depended the- on the location I had, Okay, how many people there were. I had four commercial offices and one leisure office. And then, so you ended up with... Five plus offices. Five offices total. And someone came in, and this was still growth industry at the time. Right. And you run, you hit the bell, and I wasn't for sale. They secret. They were. They were from Ohio, so they were. They knew that the what wasn't called the Rust Belt yet, but that the population was done growing in the Midwest. They were looking for areas that were growing, so they were secret shopping agencies, and. I had the ones they decided they wanted to buy in Atlanta. And you were 31. 31. Now. And I retired and I moved to the East Coast of Florida for real. For Hold on. So for, for real life, talk about retire sooner. You This is long before the fire movement. Yeah. Financial independence retire early. You were literally 31? 31. And, and what did you go to? In your mind, were you thinking? I was done. Done. Really? Done. Done. And uh, so I was living where the golf tour is based, Ponte Vedra, Florida. Ponte Vedra, yeah. And I was um, doing two sports. I was doing, going back to your hobbies. or Core what, pursuits. Core, core, core pursuits. pursuits, yeah. I was hobbies doing and um, yeah. biking and swimming, you know, doing biathlon stuff. But I wasn't doing competitions. I was just doing it myself. And I would do two miles in the pool every day. And minimum 20 miles on a bike every day. And then once a week, I would do an ultra-long bike ride. And I was I was so fit, you couldn't believe it. And That's, uh, that's like Ironman stuff. I was having, yeah, I, was, I just wasn't doing the running part because yeah. I was dealing with a ankle injury. Otherwise, I would have been a triathlete. Yeah, yeah. Um, I would have come in last in every competition I ever did. But I was doing that, and and I was, I was just basically... Uh, I loved the beach. I, uh, you know, I was be, be at the beach every day, and I was just having a great time. And then I was uh, in the process of buying a place at the beach, and that would have been it. And then for family reasons, I ended up having to come back to my birth home of Atlanta. And I remember, I still remember this day, the day I loaded up my car and came back to Atlanta. I was... So sad. Uh, I could not believe it. Did you? How long did you last? How long were you there? It was about a year. So you really did retire for a year. You basically exercised, hung out at the beach. And I still did that when I came back to Atlanta, although there's no beach in Atlanta. But I, I didn't work. Oh, you stayed retired I for stayed a while. retired. And then, so you're not believing how I ended up doing what I'm doing. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. 
Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. So I get a call. <laughs> Convince me, Clark. How we know, you're, we know you're still working because you're still doing podcasts. Yeah, so Friday afternoon late. You know, this is 1988, I guess this is. I get a call out of nowhere from a producer at a radio station um, saying, hey, I understand you know a lot about travel. Could you come on the air and talk about travel this Sunday? And so what happened was they had a travel show on the station. And so they had this show on. They had this regular guest who canceled at the last second on a Friday. This producer had gotten my name from a guy I knew uh, who they'd called and said, hey, could you come in and be a guest? This friend of mine named Ron said, who was, had been a competitor, said, no, no, I'm not doing anything like that, but I know your guy. <laughs> and so he gave him my name and number, and I went in and did this two-hour guest thing, and that was it, and didn't really think about it. Then about a month later, they had me back as a guest again, and then they, after that second appearance, they said, how would you like to be our new regular on this? I'm like, okay. I mean, two hours a week didn't pay anything. It was just kind of fun Yeah, talking about travel. And that started my whole trajectory into my media. entire media career was yeah, but, doing that one guest appearance on the radio. And then it snowballed and you ended up doing, and then when did you end up getting the Clark Howard show? When did you uh, end up so, with your own show? So uh, I started doing the travel show as host after a couple of months. The station had a show about money called Cover Your Assets. Yeah. And they couldn't decide, it wasn't doing well in the ratings. They couldn't decide whether they should cancel it or give it one more try. And so the station cover, cover your assets. Yes. Today's world, you know, with like cancel culture, you might not even be able to have a show with that name anymore. I don't know. Uh, who knows? So anyway, they had me uh, do a live audition on the air for a week and it worked. And it was like, I was doing this daily call in show about money back then. Remember there was no internet. I started with a phone book and a call screener. Is, I mean, back then, somebody would say, well, I have a problem with so-and-so. Oh, well, why don't you call these people? They might be able to help you. It was that informal and that uh, haphazard. And, and, and was that just a, was that a weekday show? Or is weekday, it so- Monday to Friday. Wow. And um, it just worked. And the ratings actually went up um, over about the next year and a half, almost 700%. So I, I got a phone call saying, hey, would you be interested in doing radio and television? I was like, well, I do radio, but I don't know anything about television. They said, we'll teach you. And so we went through like a three-month dance because I was really loyal to them. I wasn't thinking about it being a job for me. I was just passing through having fun. And then I met with them a couple of times, and I ended up signing with them to do radio and TV. And sure enough, they sent me to Iowa to TV school. What the? What is TV school? I didn't even... Well... um, What do they tell you to do? I mean... I didn't even know what the red light was on a camera. Yeah. I mean, I knew nothing. Didn't know how to read a teleprompter. I didn't know anything about doing television. But anyway, they sent me to Iowa in the middle of winter. And the first morning, 
we're all sitting around in like a in, encounter group circle and they had everybody talk about their career and people talking, well, I was in market 218. If you know how TV works, every market's got a number based on size. So market one to the smallest market. Oh, so 218. Yeah, so I was yeah. in 218 and then I was in 164 and then I went here and now I'm in Milwaukee and they want me to do anchoring and so they've sent me here to improve my skills so I can anchor instead of be a reporter and then somebody else say blah blah everybody has a story like that then they come to me and I said well I've never done tv before in this station in Atlanta called WSB wants me to do television so they sent me here so everybody starts roaring laughing because they think I'm a big jokester because everybody in that room wanted to be at WSB <laughs> in Atlanta and, uh, and they're like, no way, very funny. So then right after that, they have us all do a baseline, and we're all watching each other do these baseline video things. And I didn't know what to do. And so then later we go to lunch, and they're all, like, giving me a 1,000 questions like anybody who's a TV reporter would be like, why was I there? Why, uh, am I really, is this really a story? Like, am I really going to be on WSB? And they were just all just shocked because I couldn't do anything. And uh, so I learned trial by fire and started doing the TV. I was terrible, to tell you the truth, on TV. It's I, hard to get started. Yeah, until I yeah. learned how to do it. But they, they kept me on, and I was doing well with the viewers, and I was doing the radio, and I was writing uh, four newspaper columns a week at that point when newspapers really were the thing. And so suddenly I went from completely retired to four years later for a while I would be on TV and radio in the same hour, and I'd uh, during a radio break, I'd run to the TV set out of breath, put on the mic, do TV, run back up a spiral staircase, and go back on the radio microphone, hopefully in time before the end of their break. When you hear somebody on the radio, you think, oh, they're just kind of chatting. It doesn't seem like there's a lot. It doesn't seem, at least to, to, some, to me, it never seemed like it would be such a yeoman's job, but to do an hour or two hours or let alone three hours of radio and to do it every single day, it is, it is so much work and it's so much harder. I think than most people would ever imagine. It's just, it is a pretty intense thing, but um, my wife says that for me, it really isn't work that she could put me in the corner and I could talk for five hours to the wall. And she's probably right. She might be right. Um, so you found your calling, but let's talk about, so you really did. And this is, I, this is when, when we, I was coming in here today, I was thinking, gosh, I know that Clark did the 30, he was 31. Let's rewind the clock. If you had never worked again, no, no more income, let's just say, and let's let's say you continue to do philanthropy and volunteer and you continue to be very active, but financially. So this is a, this is a podcast about trying to help folks retire early. If you had gotten this payout and you don't have to tell us what it was back then at 30, which is a, a lot of years ago, we're talking almost 30 years. Would you have been able to just stay not, not working that entire time? Or do you think you would have said, wow, it's no, retired. I would have gotten bored. I, yeah. I was okay. Financially we're shaped so much by what happens to us when we're young and the shock to me psychologically that when my dad lost his job, that there and was they, not had, money. Yeah, they had no real cushion at that point, right? That I lived on, once I got to IBM and they were paying my way through grad school, I lived on every other paycheck. And that became my thing. When I, was, when I started the alternative school, I lived on every other paycheck. I lived a lifestyle 
where I could save half of what I made starting at 21 years old. And that was what gave me the money to be able to open the travel age, the first travel agency. I mean, the, the concept of living way beneath your means was an emotional reaction to what happened when I was 19 years old with my dad losing his job. And it framed what happened to me since. And my obsession with people living on less than what they make came from my own personal experience. And that colored what happened in my life and created the opportunities for me in my life. So 50, you, you saved, did you stick with that? Did you always end up saving 50%? No, no. Later, once I was in broadcast, I started saving 75% of what I made. And that's what I, I always did. I thought you were going to go the other way. I thought you were going to no, say, no, I no, always, later when I had kids and family. No, and, uh, even with kids, I always it. saved 75% of what I made is what I had left after I donated to charities. Because my priorities were always charities and saving money and always lived way beneath my income. You know, it's funny. The It's fun to hear. I mean, really, that's an extreme. Like what you're talking about for anybody that... I was the fire movement before it you existed. You were way fire. Yeah. You were financial independence we retire super early. And then, you know... Let's talk about entrepreneurship for a second, because again, it's expensive to live in the big city. And I know that I, I hear from listeners that, hey, you know, you're an extreme, 75% of your savings. The In the book, my original book, You Can Retire Sooner Than You Think, I try to say, look, the standard rule of thumb is save 10%. And that's great if you could do 10%, but really the bar should be more like 20 or higher. Sure. You've, been in a, you've been very smart and fortunate early on to be able to figure all this out. But for, but for folks that aren't able to do that, or at least right out of the gate, I, I think that I, I wanted to ask somebody like you who has found the, all the, these great opportunities come to, have come to you through, by the way, your favorite word, action. Yes. And your other favorite word really is service. So you've really had service through action, and maybe that's why so many great things have come your way. But I think about the world we live in today, what is somebody in their 20s supposed to do? Should you, would you say, go be an entrepreneur, go work for a company and then be an entrepreneur? How do you make a living today, Clark? How do you retire sooner? If you were 30 again today and you were just starting out of school, like a lot of folks don't start till their late 20s, sure. they get college debt, what would you do today? Well, I don't think it's so much what you do for a living is what you do with the money you earn from that living. So regardless of what you do for a job, there's an old trite phrase, pay yourself first, that you need to set yourself up, particularly coming out of school, this is easy, because you're used to living on not a lot. Right. So if you avoid mission creep with making your life steadily fancier, and your first goal is to always make sure you're saving a percent of your pay, whatever is minimum 10%, if you set that as a goal, then it's really easy if you're working for someone else. If you're an entrepreneur, it's like a bet on the future because you're likely not saving anything as an entrepreneur because everything you're doing is pouring into your business and you're building what hopefully is your future wealth through that business that you're building. And so um, I'm much more focused on people living on less than what they make 
when they work for the man, when they work, and that's an expression, when they work for someone else. Sure. And that as long as you always live on less than what you make, you will be fine financially because it feeds on itself. And avoid the temptation of, hey, the neighbor just got that new $52,000 Jeep or the neighbor just got that fancy um, uh, King Ranch F-150 yeah. or whatever it is. Or the or you mentioned some kind of fancy SUV. I forgot what you said. Tahoe, saying. yeah. Yeah, I, Tahoe, I had a, I had a Tahoe. which is a $50,000 yeah. vehicle now that if you look at used instead of new, look for something that's that's more basic transportation instead of something you get excited about because what you should be excited about is saving money for your future that creates options because what you ultimately want is you don't have to worry about pulling that vehicle out of your driveway because you don't have to go to work because you saved enough money that you get to bag it while that person is still driving their King Ranch F-150 to work because they didn't save money. They put it into that truck. Yeah. Well, and I think the other, uh, another really important thought about that optionality is if you're saving, then if you do end up wanting to start some sort of venture or have some sort of investment opportunity, you, you got the money. Got yeah. And that's what you did. You had saved and that's why you were able to start your travel agency in your early thirties. Well, no, at 25, 20s, at 25, you, you told us a little bit about how, when you did your first, let's say, year of early, super early fire movement retire, and you and you ran and you biked, and I know you still exercise a lot. You're famous for being at the YMCA, running many miles. I, I know I was like, oh, I saw Clark Howard working out uh, before. Yeah, this was pre during the pandemic. Pre pandemic. No, I got to tell you, during the pandemic, everybody in our extended neighborhood would say, "Oh, I saw you on your walk again today." I I during the pandemic was doing a minimum twelve miles a day walking. Walking. I couldn't stay trapped in the house. And one thing, even in lockdowns, you were allowed to do is you were allowed to go walk or run or whatever. So every day, regardless of the weather, I was out walking 10 to 12 miles every a day. Every single day. Every single day. What are some other Clark Howard core pursuits? Talk to me about your hobbies on steroids. I love travel. I love travel, which is <laughs> kind of a bookend to the fact that I used to be in the travel business. But uh, I would, if my wife was of a mind to do so, I would travel the world, uh, gosh, several months a year. You're saying you used to do that? Or? No, I would. Oh, you would. Lane, is, Lane travels, is not a big traveler, loves the couple of big trips we take a year. She thinks I'm nuts that we would be in an airport or in a hotel every day of the year if I could do it. Really? And our would. son would be homeschooled. One of the cool things I know about your team for so many years, and I don't know if you still do this, but you would take everybody to one big trip a year. At least yeah, wherever was... in the world goes on sale. And so I started that. Give, give us some examples. I started that in 1982 at my travel agencies and have continued it throughout my entire uh, broadcast career and beyond. And we've been to, uh, man, we've been to every continent except Antarctica. We've been to Australia, China, Japan, Thailand. I remember South Africa was South one. Africa, uh, all over Europe repeatedly, Argentina. Um, Michigan. South, as mentioned, South Africa. We did <laughs> safari in South Africa. Yeah, yeah. Um, How many people would go on these trips? What's the, what was your biggest trip at one point? The last one we had, including 
you're allowed to bring a spouse or significant other. Last trip, we had 40-something. And you pay for plane tickets? I pay for hotel and air for all the employees. And then if they bring someone with them, they buy their own ticket. But it's always on a deal because we only go on a deal. So like the last one we did right before the pandemic shut everything down, we were in Barcelona. And we went to Barcelona because it was 326 round trip. Wow. And then I give everybody a housing allowance so, so that people, people can use it as they want. So some people will share like an Airbnb where they crowd in a lot of people. So then they have some of my hotel money to go spend on meals and stuff. And then we have a couple of meetings while we're there. So it's about team building, reward, and mission. And what is your mission on the Clark Howard podcast? My mission is to empower people to take more control of their lives, not just about money. You know, it's, it's really, you know, what people lose is they lose that sense of control. And knowledge is the key to having more control by making smart choices in your life. You know, choices one by one by one all add up to uh, a direction that's positive or negative in your life. And the goal really is to give people the knowledge so that they have the power to make those smart decisions. It doesn't mean they will make the smart decisions, but that they have the knowledge to make those smart decisions. And you've been doing that with media for the really the better part for, of forever. 30 years. Yeah, for a long the, time. Let me ask you this, going back to, to travel around the world, it's going to be hard to choose coming out of COVID. I feel like the deals are going to be, there's going to be so many deals yeah, so How are you guys going to choose? So actually, <laughs> I think we're going to have the opposite of paradox of choice. I think we're going to have a hard time booking because people that are older are just all about booking travel everywhere in the world. And airlines is going to take them a good long while to get enough planes back into service that initially, after the gloom lifts and people are able to travel internationally, the fares are actually going to be very high. Mm. We're going to go through a cycle where uh, we're going to see fares much higher than normal, and then we'll normalize probably in late 22. Yeah, I was going to ask you, when do you think that that'll kind of, when, when, when are you going to get another $362 ticket to Barcelona again? I mean, it's going to be it's going to be about a year and a half from now or yeah. so. So late, you think late 2022. Airlines will have, more normalized their routes, flights, employment, and the deals will pop up haphazardly, will reappear. Let me ask you this. The, what is, when I go back to your service for, I think about for a minute, through the show, through media, through volunteering, as I point to the Habitat hammers on your wall, what is your, and Clark's, Clark's Christmas kids, uh, leave it up to a Jewish guy to, <laughs> to start Clark Howard Christmas Kids. Isn't that perfect? For how many, 30 some years? We've been I mean, doing Clark's Christmas Kids since 1991. Man. And how many foster kids have you guys helped through Clark's Christmas Kids? It's several hundred thousand, but I don't know the exact number. And by the way, this is, tell our audience what that is. Briefly. Oh, so they what we do is people either donate money or buy specific gifts that a child has asked for in foster care. One of the great privileges I've had working in the media is what uh, I'm a part-time soldier, 
is force multiplier, that people want to have an impact, but they don't know how. So I've been able with Clark's Christmas Kids and with our Habitat for Humanity builds where people are like, hey, I'd love to do that. I want to help. Mm-hmm. I want to make the world better. And so I've had this wonderful, wonderful platform through media to be able to bring people to the table to have impact. And so that's just so important to me. By the way, one of the habits of the happy early retiree is the the number one core pursuit for that happy group actually is volunteering. But to your point, it's not always that easy for somebody to figure out where they want to spend their time to volunteer. And you've helped people say, look, this is an amazing cause. Come come join the effort. I've had the privilege that people trust me. So they know that if I'm involved in something, I'm putting my money into it, that I really believe in it, and they feel comfortable helping me out with their labor or their money or both. Travel. So for Clark Howard, it's exercise, travel, service, slash volunteer. Those are three pretty amazing core And family. And family. That's four. So that's that's all you need. I don't have the fifth, though. No, you only need 3.6. I know what the fifth is. It's going to Costco. Costco. God bless Costco. All right. Uh, favorite piece of financial advice, Clark Howard. What's favorite, that? Favorite piece of financial advice. Don't treat money as a God. Treat money as an opportunity for you to have freedom in your life. Biggest money mistake if you've ever even made one. Oh, of course I've made. My goodness. Number one error I made in my life that I learned early, never do something just for tax reasons. I invested in a tax shelter along with 39 other people. Mm. We bought an apartment complex in Miami that was based on the tax laws that they existed at that time. And in 1986, under the Tax Reform Act of 1986, those tax shelters were invalidated retroactively. And I lost all my money and got a giant tax bill to boot. Ooh. That's good advice. That's good advice. All right. So Clark, God bless you. And thank you for all that you do. This was really fun. Thanks, thank ben. you. Very fun. Uh, thank you again, Clark. You can find more of Clark's money saving advice at clark.com. Pretty simple. And the Clark Howard podcast. Of course, I appreciate so much you listening to our podcast here. And if you enjoyed this episode of the Retire Sooner podcast, please share it with a friend. 